I'm delighted to be able to preach this morning on this rather complicated but uh, really rich passage. So shall we pray together? Resurrected and living Lord Jesus, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would help us understand more about the mystery of your resurrection and what that means for us today. And we pray this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So most of us here will have been touched personally by death in some way. Perhaps we have lost a close member of our family, experienced the unexpected loss of a friend during their prime. Maybe we are moved by the death of those who reach our screens and newspapers, not least, of course, this week, as we have stood and prayed for the family of Sarah Everard. And over this past year, we have been bombarded, haven't we, by daily statistics of death from COVID, each number, of course, representing the loss of an individual loved life. And some of us, some of us will have sat with that person at the end of their life. We will have prayed, held a hand, sat quietly, and probably shed tears as the last breath is taken. I have had the immense privilege during my career as a paediatric oncologist, and more recently as a priest, to sit with those who are dying and their families. Last week, I sat with a couple in their 90s, faithful friends who have prayed for me over these past years, as the wife was heading towards the end of her earthly life. We broke bread together, and I anointed her with oil as a sign of God's love and power over and through death. At no such time as this, whatever our faith, whatever our background, whoever we are, as we let go of the person we love, do we question and wonder and hope about the promise, the possibility and the shape of life after death. And if we're honest, even as men and women of faith with the clear expectation of eternal life, we are sometimes reluctant to face up to the idea of death for ourselves. And yet the very foundation of our Christian hope, our unifying creed, if you like, as Paul has so clearly outlined in the first part of this chapter, is based not only on the sacrificial death of Jesus on a cross, a death that offers freedom for the whole of humanity, but also his bodily resurrection. Paul, in this letter to the church in Corinth, goes on to unfold what this means for each of us, emphasising that if Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, then surely there must be resurrection for us too. Paul even goes on in verse 14 in the earlier part of the passage to say, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching, my preaching, is useless 
And so is your faith. So this morning, as we look together at the second part of chapter 15, let's take this space, this sacred space, to continue our own wrestling and questioning alongside the people of Corinth, as we too wonder, firstly, how is it possible for the dead to be raised? And secondly, what might our resurrected bodies look like? And as we look more closely at Paul's unpacking of this subject, let's be encouraged that although this is a passage about death, the final analysis is very clear. Death has been swallowed up in victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, I'll leave us with the challenge that Paul gives us at the end of the passage, another of his therefores. If all of this is true, how will it affect the way we live our lives today? The whole purpose of this part of Paul's letter to the Corinthians is to address their difficulty in grasping a bodily resurrection. Not only did some of the Jewish leadership, the Sadducees, fiercely object to this concept, but the predominant Greek culture in Corinth, influenced by Plato's dualism, body and soul, they believed that the body was evil, corrupt and mortal, and they focused therefore on the preservation of the eternal soul. And in many ways, this was understandable. Life in the Roman Empire was hard, food scarce, disease rampant, life expectancy low. Hoping to escape the struggles of an unhealthy physical body was perhaps not an unreasonable hope. Paul, however, begins to set up an argument based not only on the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but also on God's redemptive narrative for the whole of creation, beginning in Genesis, to argue the case for new transformed bodies after death. Bodies that will both be different and yet similar, unrecognizable and yet recognizable. And Paul, referring right back to Genesis, offers two really helpful illustrations from the life cycle of a plant, together with the huge variety of living creatures from fish to animals to ourselves, the Homo sapien. Paul, of course, is making the point that as we sow a seed, the final plant, although containing the very essence of the original, original seed will look completely different. I bought a bowl, which uh, I pulled up after last year. It's not an iris or a daffodil or a crocus, but a tulip. And uh, it will be planted again in a few months' time. And next spring, it will emerge in its own beautiful variety. I don't know, I can't remember what colour this is now, but it, it will be red. It's predestined to be red or yellow or, or, or white. And one point to emphasise within the translation here is important. When Paul says God gives it a body he has determined, the translation is to make alive. The seed or the bulb here isn't the one that brings life. 
that determines the body. It is God, the masterwork of the creator of all things. Not only are there many kinds of plants, but also species of animals, all uniquely different. Even as Paul says, the stars in the sky seem to vary in their brightness. If only he had had access to the telescope, he would have realized just how right he was. And Jesus, of course, uses the same analogy referring to himself and his own resurrection when he says in the Gospel of John, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus sees that his own death is a kind of seed planting, a kind of dissolution, disintegration that results in a great and glorious and fruitful resurrection. So if this is true for simple plant life, how much more is it true for human life and the design of the resurrection body that God will provide for us after death? Paul emphasizes here that our creator God is capable of giving people resurrection bodies that are different than their earthly bodies while yet maintaining the identity and continuity of their individual personalities in the process. A quote from Jay Packer, author and theologian, summarizes this in his book, Weakness is the Way, and leads us into Paul's description of these resurrection bodies. And he says this, our new body will reflect us as we were at our best, rather than as we are physically at the time of leaving this world. Indeed, we should expect it to be better than our physical best ever was. The new body will never deteriorate, but will keep its newness for all eternity. It will know no inner tensions between one desire and another, each pulling against the other, nor will it desire to do something ever our desire to do something, ever run out, outrun energy and ability so to do. Fantastic. Nor, when we are in glory, shall we ever lack or fail to show love to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to all the brothers and sisters in Christ who are there with us. So according to Paul, what are these characteristics of the resurrection body? Our earthly bodies sound pretty wretched as Paul describes them as perishable, dishonorable, weak, and physical. Paula Gooder, in her book on heaven, says even this translation doesn't do the original text justice, and the translation for our earthly bodies should perhaps read more like this. Decreasing capacities and increasing weaknesses issuing in exhaustion and stagnation compared to our resurrection bodies which are imperishable, glorious, powerful and spiritual. And there is no sense in Paul's deliberations that a spiritual body means a, a disembodied spiritual existence, rather that our resurrection bodies will be governed by the spirit, not by earthly matter. And of course, as the Spirit lives in us now, 
we are all slowly, hesitantly moving towards being transformed into those resurrection bodies. And I love how Paul describes this in his letter to the Philippians. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we, they will be like his glorious body. And that's Philippians 3.21. And so for Paul, with the backdrop of Christian persecution, imprisonment and the threat of execution, there was an immediacy, I think, in Paul's reflections around our bodily decay and death. And another verse from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and one I often use when I'm teaching about the spirituality of aging, says this. Therefore, another therefore, do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So returning to our passage, we then have a short section about Adam, the first human being, emphasising that our natural physical existence does come first, followed then by Jesus, who is known as the second Adam, who also begins life as an incarnate physical being, but who first experiences physical death, but then brings the promise of an eternal spiritual existence. And this difference, I think, can be summed up in this one sentence. Adam was given life, but Jesus is the giver of life. And the best way to answer the question, what will our resurrected body be like, is also given at the end of this section in the passage. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven, victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. But how do these complex theological truths and mysteries impact the way we lead our lives today. We may like to ignore the reality of our aging and decaying bodies. I have reading glasses. Some of us have um, hearing aids. All of our muscle mass is decreasing and we probably can't run the marathon as quickly as we used to do. We may like to ignore this and that the one equalizing certainty for all of us is that we will face death. But Paul clearly wants us to move through this and leaves us with two exhortations or challenges that I think is the take-home message for us today. And he finishes by saying, therefore, and I'm going to just read that sentence in the message translation. With all of this going on for us, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground and don't hold back Throw yourselves into the work of the master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. So firstly, stand your ground in this amazing foundation of hope that we have been gifted. Be confident in the promise of an imperishable, glorious resurrection body 
in the likeness of Christ for yourselves and for others. Over the coming weeks, as we've heard already, we'll be looking in more depth about the shape of this hope in our devoted series. So please use this opportunity to dig deeper, bed in those foundations, ask those difficult questions so that your hope becomes shaped by Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. But it is a mystery. So draw on other commentators and authors to reflect on some of these complex truths. I mentioned Heaven by Paula Gooder. I'm going to refer, just as I finish, to Surprised by Hope by Tom Wright. Perhaps talk about it as a family with your children. There's a wonderful book called Water Bugs and Dragonflies, which you may have heard of for children, that beautifully illustrates life after death. It's a story about water bugs buzzing around under the water, and they notice that their brothers and sisters, one by one, climb up the water lily leaf and disappear and never come back again. So they make a promise to each other and say, whoever goes next, come back and tell us what it's like. So by and by, one of these water bugs does this and they, they're exhausted after their journey up the stem and they fall asleep on the water lily leaf. And of course, they wake up and they've been transformed into a dragonfly. And they enjoy swooping and dipping in great curves, it says. And by and by, the new dragonfly lighted happily on a lily pad to rest. Then it was that he chanced to look below to the bottom of the pond. Why? He was right above his old friends, the water bugs. There they were, scurrying about, just as he had been doing some time before. And then he remembered, the next one of us who climbs up the lily stalk will come back and tell where he went. So without thinking, the dragonfly tries to go back. And of course... He can't, and he realizes that the water bugs will have to wait their turn before they receive their transformed bodies. A beautiful story that helps to illustrate for children what it means to die and the promise of resurrection. And of course, don't forget Aslan in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. So secondly and finally, Paul says, throw yourselves into the work of the master the point of our resurrection bodies, as <clears throat> Paul has been arguing, is that our present bodily life is not valueless because it will die. The person we are right now, with all our gifts, vocations, roles, all these will last into God's future. And Tom Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, says, what you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something which will become in due course part of God's new world. The way we lead our lives today matters. Prioritizing prayer and worship makes a difference. Every act of kindness, standing up for injustice, caring for our created world, all these things are a response to the confidence we have in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, which means that all that we do 
living in the risen Christ and in the power of the Spirit will not be wasted as we too look forward to a time when our bodies will be imperishable and glorious in the image of Jesus himself. Amen. Amen.